This is Truth Encounter, and today our present series on the second law, Deuteronomy, brings us to chapter 5 and the introduction to the Big Ten. No, not the Midwest College Conference, but the Big Ten divine commands that lay the foundation for all of morality. Even the word command in English sounds cold and controlling, but in the Old Testament, God's commands are seen as a life-giving standard provided by the king who set his people free. Obedience was to be the normal response of gratitude from a people who had been set free. Our study leader, Dave Wordson, illustrates this expected response to a deliverer by recounting one of those near-drowning incidents. The lake was perfectly calm, and the boys could swim fairly well, and they started swimming out to this buoy. And they made it just fine. In fact, when you got out to the buoy, you could grab a hold of that thing, and you could rest while you were you know, trying to recuperate to get ready for the trip back home. Now, my brother Ron and I, with that buoy, used to climb down the chain, seeing if we could reach the bottom. We would dive down and hold our breath and blow the air out of our ears so that we could equalize the pressure, and we would just pull on this chain to try to get as deep into the lake as we could. What I didn't know is that we had never been able to touch the bottom in this particular place because the glaciers came through many years ago. Maybe the Lord just did it by his handiwork. Who knows? I know the Lord did it. I don't know exactly how he did it, but he scooped out a trench that's over 100 feet deep, and you can't dive free breathing down 100 feet. So I knew it was very, very deep. And all this was in the back of my mind. Suddenly I looked down to the southern end of the lake and dark clouds are rolling in for the rain. And suddenly the placid lake was not placid, but there were about three foot waves that started rolling and breaking over this little thing, this beacon of light that we were holding onto. I said, boys, we need to try to break for sure. So they started swimming and I started swimming and we were doing really great till we got about halfway through that deep part which was only about 12 yards into our journey. And Jonathan tells me, Dad, I don't think I'm going to make it. So I said, okay, get on my back. And all of you daddies have pulled that little shenanigans, you know, where you put them on your back and then you try to do the breaststroke. And so I started doing that and I was doing fine until Joel said, Daddy, I don't think I'm going to make it. Now, you can stay relatively buoyant in that kind of surf uh, with one son on your back, but when two sons got on my back, I started going down and I started gulping water, and I realized that I had to make a choice. You know, what am I in the world I'm going to do? So we were swimming, and we were, I said, well, you're going to have to just kind of, one of you going to have to swim beside me, the other one going to have to ride my back. And we struggled to make another 10 yards or so, but the water, by this time with the waves going over, the water was still over my head. My dad was on the shore, and I got within about 10 feet of safety, and I realized I wasn't going to make it. And so I grabbed Jonathan, and I just hurled him as far as I could, and I yelled to my dad, come and get him. And then I grabbed a hold of Joel and just struggled for everything that I had. And man, Mary came out on the beach when she heard about this, just about had my neck. Um, but I noticed that my boys were filled with gratitude to their daddy, not for being stupid and letting them go out to this buoy, but my boys were filled with gratitude for delivering them from certain death. 
Part of being a daddy is providing that kind of deliverance. In fact, what daddy wouldn't sacrifice their own life in order to save their kids? Because that's what a daddy's love is about. I want you to imagine yourself a slave. I want you to imagine that you have had a master that's been controlling you. They got you up at 5 o'clock in the morning and you had to stoke the fires and then you had to make breakfast and then you had to go out and work uh, in, on, the, on the farm and you had to feed the cattle and your entire day was completely ordered by your master. Your master was not kind. They were vindictive. They were angry. Off in the middle of the afternoon, they would furiously uh, lose their temper with you and take a great big bullwhip and just start cracking it over your back and you had big welts on your back. And this was your existence day after day after day. You never knew when your own family might be threatened. This master could come in and take a daddy from one family and just move him to a totally different part of his domain and put you in another family. You never see your immediate family again. I want you to stop and I want you to think about what it would be like to be a slave, to have no freedom. As Americans, it's very hard for us to understand what it would mean to not have our freedom. I mean, we can travel in between states freely. We can change from one job to the next. Freedom is the essence of the American way. But in order to feel what's in our text today, I want you to use your imagination to feel what it would be like to be a slave. Year after year after year, you're a slave. And there's no hope of ever being delivered. Suddenly, an army invades, conquers the master that has enslaved you for these many years, and suddenly you hear those words that you had completely given up hope of ever hearing. And those words, you are now free, became the reality of your existence. And this great king, this great, great ruler that came in to deliver you, says, all that I want you to do is I want you to show appreciation to me. I want you to love me. I want you to remember. I'd like you to take a few times during the year and go back and remember your history in slavery. And then I want you to recount in your memory. I want you to remember and I want you to tell your kids about this tremendous deliverance, this redemption. The payment was made so that you could be delivered from slavery. That's what I would like you to do. In fact, it's the bottom line of what I want and what I expect from you. Just like a daddy expects his sons to appreciate him and love him, especially if he gives himself so that he can set them free from certain death, just like a king that delivered an enslaved people would expect those people to express devotion to him, the heavenly daddy, the heavenly king, came to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. In our study together, we looked at the Lord Jesus' approach to the Ten Commandments. We found out that we cannot take these commandments just externally, but we must take them internally as well. That we can't just apply them as an external rules and regulations that by rote or just by checking off these external uh, legal standards, we try to obey them. Instead, we learned that Jesus said that we needed to apply them 
in the depths of our heart. They had to do with our inside. We look at Deuteronomy chapter 5 and we have one of the major places that these ten words of God are given is in Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 6. And it says, And he said, This is the Lord God. The Lord God speaking in the first person. And Moses had set up the Israelite people that have been gathered together on the plains of Moab and he's now reminding them of their history of redemption. And he starts out with the very first command, which is kind of an introduction to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And what I want you to see is the Ten Commandments are often presented as kind of a cold, very rigid, legal code that people are to try to obey externally. What I want you to see, the Ten Commandments begin with the Lord saying, I am the Lord. And the people say, which Lord are you? Which master are you? And he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You say, Dave, what's significant about that? As we begin studying the Ten Commandments, it's important for us to recognize that this wasn't a king who just hadn't done anything for the people. He'd never touched their lives. And he just arbitrarily came and said, I want you to love me. The Lord came to the people on Mount Sinai. He came to a people that had been enslaved for 400 years. They had been whipped. They had been lashed. Their families had been divided. Their babies had been killed. This people for 400 years lived in this slavery and this terrible situation. The Lord God came to them in Mount Sinai and said, I am the Lord your God. I am the one who delivered you from Egypt, from the house of slavery. It's very important to understand that the king of kings that came to the people of Israel was a redeemer. Was a redeemer. And that's what gave him the right to go on and say, you shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is God's exclusive right over our lives. It's possible that the command, you shall have no other gods before me, does very little to us. It, it emotionally doesn't move us very much because it's just kind of an external command. And I ask myself the question, who is this Lord? The Lord says, I am the Lord. And I want you to have no other gods before me. And it's possible as I hear those words that it just does very little for me. The reason it might not do very much is because I have forgotten what it's like to be redeemed. You see, when Moses gave these words to the Israelites, it brought back this tremendous sense of deliverance. We were an enslaved people. We were a people that were perishing. We were a people that had ceased to be a nation. And through the power of Yahweh, our God, and the very word Yahweh, the word Lord that's used here means, I am the existent one who is there for you. I am the eternally existent one who's there for you. It's possible you're a teenager here today, or you're a, you're a young college student, or an adult, and you say, Dave, to be honest with you, that command, thou shalt have no other God before me. This command, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, that just means very little to me. If you're really honest, you say, deep in my soul, 
I don't really like to read the Word of God. I don't really like to gather together with God's people. I would really rather be out with my friends. I would really rather be doing something else. Some of you husbands say, to be honest with you, Dave, my wife drags me in here. And, and, and it brings back all kinds of memories from my past of when my parents used to drag me into church. And often we approach that issue saying, well, you know, I guess the church just really isn't with it. Uh, maybe we need to change the form a little bit. Maybe we need to change the place. We, maybe we need to try some different brands. But the question I'd like you to ask yourself that's much more important is maybe this issue of loving God with all your hearts and not having other gods before him, maybe the struggle that you have with that, this idea of an intimate relationship with God, is that maybe God's never really done anything for you. You see, if I, never, if I never showed love to my boys, if there were no experiences from the time that I, they were little tiny kids, if there were no experiences where I delivered them, where I gave myself for them, where I loved them, if I was a mean daddy or a vindictive daddy, they would want to get away from me. If I gave a command to them, you shall have no other daddies. If my sons were abused, they would be running all over the place for other daddies looking for other relationships. I want to share something with you. Some of you, that's exactly what you're doing. You see, some of you were raised in situations where there really wasn't an honest, true relationship with Christ at the center of your home. It was just sterile religion. And for all intents and purposes, if we really shared honestly about Christianity, all Christianity means to you is a bunch of do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts. Don't do all the things that are fun. Don't do all the things that are enjoyable. Don't do all the things that bring laughter and smiles to you. Do all the things that are boring and laborious and agonizing. And that's Christianity. And so obviously, when we, when we have a command, thou shalt have no other gods before you, you shall have no other gods before me, God says, it doesn't do anything. Because you say, Dave, I don't think I've been delivered from anything. I can't remember, you know, what it's like not to be a believer or not to know about the claims of Christ. And so I don't remember any redemption. You see, when I was five years old, there just wasn't a whole lot, as far as human thinking is concerned, for me to be redeemed from. And it's easy, therefore, to just take the whole thing for granted. But you know, as we listen to the Word of God today, and we have this very first command, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because Yahweh says, I am the ultimate Redeemer. For the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, the redemption was from physical slavery in Egypt. For us today in the New Testament church, Jesus Christ has made the stakes go much higher and he's penetrated much deeper and the slavery that he's delivered us from is the slavery of our sin. And some of you that were saved older in life, as I look over this audience, some of you were born again after you'd already lived in the world for quite some time. And what I mention to you, remember what it was like to be a slave. Remember what it was like 
to not be able to escape the power of your passion. You see, when I, I can illustrate it this way. When I went to a Christian school down in Florida, where we lived buried in the midst of orange groves, the basic idea was, among a lot of the teenagers that were in that school was, if we could only get out of this place, if we could just go and, and be able to drink on a Friday night, just like the ads on TV, and we didn't even see TV, so we had to remember when we used to be able to look at TV before we came into this, this monastery. And, the, and some of the kids would think, if only I could go out there and be with the beautiful people, and if only I could go to those parties. And man, if only, you know, if only there could just be the freedom of expression of sexuality. Man, the tremendous thrill of being able to find somebody that, that really thinks I'm special and really thinks I'm, I'm neat and I'm, and I'm worth something. If only I could just give vent to those passions that I have, then I would really be free. You see, the Christian kids would all look out there at the world and they would long for it and they would want to have it. They would think that was the place of freedom. It's very interesting how different it is when you're on a secular university campus where there aren't any bars, where there aren't any rules, where everybody can do exactly what they want to do. And a guy that's a junior in university, and he started out as a freshman, going to that party, joining the fraternity, getting smashed, and it began just getting smashed on a Friday night. Then it was Friday night and Saturday night. Then it was Friday night, Saturday night, and maybe Tuesday night. But now the kid's a junior. And deep in his soul, he knows that he can't stop taking one more. And he begins to feel what slavery really, really is. His senior year, he's already bedded down tens by the score. But now there's a deep feeling inside of him after one relationship after another where the girl is just a thing. And he's even finding that his body isn't really responding that much because the alcohol is kind of dulling everything. And he's starting to walk into a dark world of bondage and slavery. That's what the world system is really like. And I plead with you moms and dads, expose your kids to what the world is really like. Hit them right in the face with it. Don't let them experience it. Do everything you can to put the proper controls so they don't burn themselves in a school of hard knocks, but don't try to protect them. Let them see what the world system really, really is like, or else they'll never appreciate what we've been delivered from. Take them to the mission down in downtown Dallas. Let them see what drinking really does. It's the best cure in the world for them. If your kids are having trouble developing in their sexuality and living a pure life, Grab a hold of a, of a girl that went through the university scene that's 25 years of age that's already been in and out of maybe two marriages and has two kids, have that girl talk to that young person, that young guy, that young girl. That's, what's, that's the way to do it. And let's remind ourselves what we've been delivered from. 
Now, I could throw it open right here, right at this point, and I could say, some of you can remember. Some of you know what it's like to be delivered from slavery. And I want to encourage you to share, share in Sunday school, to share in Awana, to share in the teenage group, to share in the college group. Share the reality of your testimony, of the deliverance that you found in Christ. Because this command, you shall have no other gods before me, is the exclusive right of God because he is the only redeemer. The reason that I can't let anything else in my life take precedence over him is because he is the only one that sets us free. He is the only one that protects us from drowning spiritually. He is the only salvation giver. And I think that's probably Satan's most obnoxious, most seductive lie. He has convinced large portions of the world that God is the one who produces bondage and slavery. And he's the one that produces freedom. That's the ultimate lie. Because God is the one that gives laughter and gives scintillating pleasure and gives hope and gives happiness that lasts forever. And oh, how Satan has messed that whole thing up. And that's why this command, you shall have no other gods before me, it's not the command of some vindictive, arbitrary king that says, I'm jealous over you in a wrong sense, and I want to keep you from things, and, and I'm the one that wants to really mess up your life. He's the loving daddy. Do you think I cared for Jonathan and Joel? What do you think went through my mind when I could see the waters that could bury them? Man, it scared me to death. I want to do everything I could to redeem them. That's the heart of the daddy. And it would hurt me deeply if Jonathan or Joel walked in after this conference when they get ready to leave. They said, Dad, we decided we're going to trade you in on another dad. We're going to give all of our affection, all of our daddy love to another person. How do you think I'd feel about that? That would be one of the most hard things. Some of you have faced that in broken homes and things. You've faced a child that rejects you as a parent. And your parental love is just trashed in the garbage can. That's the way God feels emotionally. The divine Lord feels that way when we let other things and other beings take his place. It's not a mean rule. It's not a rule that's just arbitrary. This command, thou shalt have no other gods before me, is the ultimate expression of reality because he's the only God who's really there. He's the only God that can really set us free. He's the only redeemer there is. And in the New Testament sense, this ultimate thunder and lightning God of Mount Sinai has fleshed himself out in human terms in the person of Jesus. And John 1 tells us that he became flesh and tabernacled and tented among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. Only the Holy Spirit can move you to believe that. Only the Holy Spirit can take the teenagers and move you to believe that. Only the Lord can take the adults and move you to believe that. But oh, I pray that he will. I pray that our hearts will beat with an exclusive relationship. Thou shalt have no other gods before me.
because that's the foundation of it all. We're going to spend all Deuteronomy chapter 6 with Moses explaining and interpreting what it means to have no other gods before him. It's an exclusive relationship of devoted child love to an ultimate daddy. It's the exclusive devoted life of the ultimate spouse to the ultimate lover. It's why God says, don't have any other gods because all the other gods are false. All the other gods are imaginary. All the other gods, when you get ready to step into eternity, they won't be there. You might see blinding lights in this life. You might have exotic experiences. You might have incredible sensations. But when you go to make that split-second jump into life everlasting, the Lord God of Israel, the Father of Jesus Christ, alone will be there. Isn't it great when you have him in your life and you know he's going to be there forever? And we're safe. That's why we study the Word of God. That's why we pray. And when I find myself growing cold in those disciplines of the Christian life, I go back to this foundation. Dave, what's happening with your love? What's happening with your relationship? Probing questions. What is happening today in our love relationship with God? Have you found yourself already today getting lost in the hassle of word processing, phone calls, appointments to keep, deadlines to make, so that any sense of God's abiding presence and sustaining love has been forgotten? I wrestle with this besetting human tendency to forget about the true God as a multitude of false gods grab a hold of my heart and purse strings. I am sure you wrestle with this temptation as well. Let's take some time to remember our great deliverance and our great deliverer. Give God some heart time today.